Part 3 Snap Call Pat Oh yeah, of course we all play. Can you imagine how unbearable this job would be if I didn't absolutely love this game? The majority of my time is just tossing cards to jackasses and drunk idiots who all think they're at the final table of the WSOP. It'd be a special kind of hell if I didn't get at least that slight enjoyment from seeing their luck run out on a back-breaking river. <laughs> it took me a while to master the self-control required not to let the smirk show. And the fact is, anyone who doesn't love this game pretty much hates it. It requires too much dedication and concentration to be a light interest. You have to give too much to yourself for it to be anything other than an obsession. Yeah, I can't get enough of it. I usually run a shift here, change in the locker room, and then hit the tables right after, even if it's only for a quick hour. Am I good? I'm no Danny. That's clear. I win my share of hands. Spend enough time watching the sharks gobble up the fish and you'll learn some tricks. That's the thing about poker, though. And I'm not the first guy to say this, but what makes it so alluring, what makes guys like Danny able to live off less skilled players like me, is the simple fact that everyone thinks they can play. Can't really find a man at any of these tables that doesn't already think he's the next Ivy or Holt. Either that or he thinks he could be a pro if he just studied a little more. Do you know how much pros like that make? Selling their strategy books filled with absolute garbage advice? These guys don't even have to play anymore. That's the real scam. You just need to play well enough to make it to the World Series, then suddenly everyone wants your advice. So you charge them for it. You sell classes, coaching, books, blogs, anything. Because fish will buy anything. That's what makes them fish. They don't understand the actual value of their money. They have no grasp of return on investment. They just want to win and get rich, so they usually move too fast and, ironically, go broke in that pursuit. No one stops to think of the obvious. This is a game built on deception. The other side of that is if you play well enough to get on ESPN, or even just get a reputation around town, you could start getting backers. Rich people kind of do things the opposite way of normal folks. They have so much money, they have nothing better to do than to risk it. They win, they got even more to blow. They lose, who cares, they're rich. The whales will lose so much from time to time that they'll get to a point where they'll instead try to invest in players much better than them in high roller events. Either that or they want to lose twice as much in half the time. Now if you're good enough, you don't even need to pony up to play in high profile tournaments. You end up playing well because it's not your ass on the line and thus there's no pressure. Now you're richer and more famous. You can sell even more books, video classes, coaching, etc., etc., and the cycle continues. And here's the jacked up part. You're not even that good. You hit a hot streak at the perfect time, and now you're set for life. Meanwhile, all your disciples are learning horrible techniques and will go broke in the process of trying to emulate your success. You'll never get a downswing because you don't need to play to survive anymore. Plus, you're pretty much a whale by this point yourself. What do they say? It's good work if you can get it. That's the key right there. For every Daniel Negrano, there's thousands of Danny Messinas. And millions of no-name fish who get to sleep at the bus stations while they lick their wounds and get back on their feet. Meaning getting some shitty job selling insurance in Youngstown, Ohio. No more late nights grinding. 
No more bright lights and comp buffets. No more glitz and glamour. If they're not too jaded after, they might host a home game every week with their buddies. Maybe crack a smile when they bluff Jasper from across the street with Deuce Adolf. This game may be something everyone can enjoy, but there's almost no one that can take the highest levels of it and not come out with some deep scars. Liam You know, I taught Danny how to play. He used to come over to my house when we were kids and spend whole weekends there. Sometimes I would come over to his mom's house, but it was a small apartment and they didn't have cable, so that was less often. One time, we were boys, so when we got together like that and knew we could stay up late and goof off, we got really annoying and just would try to see exactly how far we could get down my mother's nerves. At some point, we did something stupid, so she locked up the N64 in the cable box, and we were asked out for two days. The only thing we had were the board games, which were all crappy and missing like 10% of the pieces. There was, however, a complete deck of cards. After the boredom got so bad that we almost started reading, I pulled out the deck, spread out all the board game pieces like chips, and I showed my little cousin the game of draw poker. At first we played a simple version with an ante, then five cards, a street of betting, then a showdown. After he got the hang of that, we moved to an extra draw round, then some more streets, and finally... We made our way to hold him. I showed him some tricks and a little bit of what cards he would want to fold right away, the absolute basics of position, and he was hooked. We must have played 500 hands that weekend. We kept playing after, too. Not super often, but we'd pull out cards every now and again. We started playing for real money which made it all the more addicting. They do say the game doesn't get fun until the hands start to hurt. Sometimes Danny would take his winnings and we'd walk to the corner store where he'd spend it all on hot Cheetos and gummy bears, savoring the fact that not only did I get nothing, but it was my money that paid for it. Other times I would take him for everything he had and I'd get to buy all the goodies. He was my little cousin, though, so I never left him totally dry. Once he got smart enough to realize he needed some fish to make this a thing, he started setting up some games. He was probably around 17 at this time, just starting to come to the adult realization that money is everything. He finally got it through his head that myself and our little group of friends only had so much cash. Guys in his class were just starting to get their first jobs, but no one had to pay rent yet, so their funds were ripe for the picking. We kept the games going sporadically for a few months. Danny would drain his table every night, didn't matter who was playing. Think he got up to maybe $3,000 at one point.
he had to start recruiting players from other schools to keep the cash flowing. I still tell him how that was his true calling. He ran an illegal poker game for months, with thousands of dollars pumping in and out, and not once did we have any trouble with cops or robbers. I kept telling him he was incredibly stupid not to take a rake. He said he didn't want to do the work involved. His thing was that he just wanted a place to hone his craft and make some cash in the process. That was mostly BS, though. Danny's thing is that he likes to take. He doesn't want a paycheck. He wants your paycheck. That's why poker was the only path for him. And he would take all the hits he needed because to him, there was no other way. Even though he probably would have fared so much better as a tournament director or a card room manager. Who knows? Maybe that's still an option. There were ups and downs, of course. Danny bet way more than me, so his swings were more pronounced. He would go down a little here and there, and it wasn't a big deal until he started to borrow. I don't even know where he met this guy, but he was taking petty loans, maybe 400 or 500 bucks from a dude he met from one of our Uncle Kit's friends. Just for reference, Uncle Kit was always into stuff that wasn't always above board. Anyway, he would hit up this guy to float him some cash when his well got a little too close to dry, and for the most part, he would bounce right back and pay him without any issue. Then one day, he played a little too long. I won't bore you with the details, but this was around October... We usually started playing at like 8 or 9 at night. And it was almost 4 in the morning when this hand came down. It was a hard night for Danny, for both of us really. But I tucked my tail and gave up my seat once I got down about 500. Danny didn't stop. He was trickling chips, having his blind stolen and losing baby pots. Then he'd steal someone else's blinds and take down something with, like, five bigs in it. Point was, he wasn't worried. Like all these stories go, it wasn't as simple as the specifics of the actual hand that broke him. It went deeper into the environment, the psyche. In fact, let me take it back real quick. If you don't play poker regularly you might not understand the swings. You can be the best player in the world, playing at the highest level in your prime, and there's still going to be times when you have, oftentimes up to a full month or two of losing sessions. Just the way the game goes. This had happened to Danny a few times already, but he was a smart guy, so he knew how to watch his bankroll and just ride out the dark cloud. I don't know what was going on with him at this time, but he was all out of sorts, and it didn't take long for it to affect his game. He was putting everyone on bad ranges, just funneling chips into the other stacks with terrible calls and the worst bluff attempts I had ever seen him make. I knew I'd have no luck convincing him to stop playing and just chill for a while, 
so I didn't try. Instead, I told him to take a little more time in the tank, maybe tighten up a bit, and fold those peripheral hands. That itself was a gamble because Danny's entire poker style is pure intuition. I never saw him study or go through Flopzilla like all the other pros do. The only thing he'd ever do is grab a deck and just play out hands by himself. Sometimes dealing out a full ring and making up player profiles in his head. It was actually amazing. So, back to that fatal hand. We've established that Danny was on a downswing, nothing he hadn't seen before, but he was running into like his seventh or eighth week of losing and it was starting to get to him. He was only down maybe a thousand, but it was diminishing faster and faster with every session. He went into the game that night with maybe 2200 in the fund. He brought maybe six or seven buy-ins, all of which were borrowed, and he was three bullets in by the first hour. This is when I should have stopped him. I may not have been able to get him to leave the table necessarily, but I could have at least tried, at least reminded him that that was some goon's money he was losing, not his. He kept playing horribly, I'd never seen it this bad, and he was down to his last buy-in. He got ahead right away, and it looked for a minute like he had just turned the corner. The next few hours continued like this, trending slightly better, and the table started to dry up. It was almost sunrise by now, and people were running out of gas. Well, everyone except Sidney Pontius. Real quick, Sidney was a stone-cold bitch. He was a rich kid that only came to the games to bully everyone off big pots. If he had it, he took the cash. If he didn't, he just busted out another roll of bills. Everyone hated him, and the only reason we let him play is because he was the only whale we had back then. Well, he just so happened to be on what was probably the biggest upswing of his life. It eventually came down to a four-seat table with Danny, Sid, and two other fish. Oh, the other thing about Sidney is he could talk, talk, talk and just fill the air with so much BS, you'd feel nauseous. That was a massive part of his game. Just wear you down with his stupid takes, attempts at jokes, and just all the garbage that came out of his mouth. He had been running that mouth for hours by this point, and nearly everyone was completely checked out. Danny was naturally the foil to Sydney. He was actually a good player, and he was a quiet one. He was friendly at the tables, and he only got friendlier as he got older, but he always kept his focus on the cards. Trust me, there was not a man alive that could get him to talk anything about the game at the table, and believe me, they all tried. Naturally, Sidney hated that, and when he was at a table with Danny, he would only try to talk to him. This was excruciating to watch, but Danny always handled it really well. 
The hands were going back and forth. Danny was sane enough to fold against some of the more radical raises from Sid. But he knew he was still getting suckered in those early streets, so he started adjusting and building more aggressively toward the rivers. Of course, Sid would not shut up. And despite what I've seen him do with a deck of cards and a few pieces of clay, Danny is a human being. Flawed, just like the rest of us. So, he started to get worn down. He was talking back to Sid for a while. Then he had to just shut down completely to regain his elite focus. And that was about as rocky a process as you could expect. Sidney didn't take kindly to being shut out, and, like the dickhead he was, he just went all in every hand for the next few draws, until he realized Danny had no problem folding to him over and over, then sticking it to him when he had a good pair. Finally, they got to the hand of the night. Let's get through this as best as I can remember. I am kidding, of course. I will never forget that hand. Danny's on the button and sits the big blind. Cards come out and the first dude folds. Danny raises a standard three big blinds. Small blind completes. Then the action heads to Sid, who tanks for an annoying 30 seconds before raising 10 big blinds. Danny snap calls, which he does often enough that it didn't have me even batting an eye. I figured he had something like king-queen suited or better. Anyway, small blind folds, and the flop comes out with Danny and Sid heads up. Nothing of note, except for a king. Two non-face card diamonds completed. I'm thinking Danny is still ahead, assuming he has a king and another big card. He wouldn't snap call without something strong. Sid, on the other hand, was an idiot, so he would raise like that with just a jack or even complete air. Again, like a jerk, he raises half Danny's stack. He even had the balls to ask him how much he had behind. You don't do that. Real players don't do that. Of course, Danny didn't answer, so he sat there and made a big scene of counting every single chip, even after Danny told him how much he was sitting on. When he finished his little tantrum, he raised half the stack. Once again, Danny snap-called, and the hand went forward. A useless four of diamonds came up on the turn. Guess. Sidney tanks for, like, a full minute, then starts talking, 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 until Danny finally had enough and tells him to just play. Sidney looked like he actually took offense to Danny, which he's always careful not to show. He scoffed like a true douche and said, Okay, I'll play, but that little stack ain't worth what I got. What else you want to put up? Again, in the poker world, this is considered a dick move. You play what's on the table, either the chips or any cash you have behind your stack. If you want to raise something else, like your car or your Laker tickets, then you can, but you do not ask someone to do that. 
Another thing you don't do is interfere with the players. I really wanted to get in Danny's ear and tell him not to fall for this crap, but I couldn't. Danny looked deep into Sidney's eyes, probably saw how empty that head of his was, and to my absolute horror, told him that he had 800 behind and another 1200 in the bank. One of the key components of bankroll management is that you only ever bring the cash you can afford to lose at the table. Danny was already breaking that rule by playing on credit, but telling Uber Dick Sidney Pontius about the other cash he had, and in this case everything he had, was one of the most idiotic things I had ever seen at a poker table. I was besides myself, but the thing that probably kept me from grabbing him and dragging him out of that room was that I knew he must be sitting on something huge to do something so bold. Sidney told him if he put it all behind, he'd match it. Then he popped out a wad of cash to prove it. That was all Danny needed to see. He flipped his card over and showed King Queen Diamond Flush. Sid showed Ace of Diamonds with another junk card, which of course put it all on the river. With only seven diamonds out there to complete Sid's better flush and sink Danny's brilliant play, that put it at about an 85% chance that Danny pulled off what would be the biggest score of his life. I don't mean to be anticlimactic or anything, but even by saying that, I'm sure you know the suit of the card that came next. Danny took it well. I should say, he showed it well. Sidney gloated like the piece of excrement that he was, of course, and we all see watching him get away with such a piss-poor display of poker execution. Smiling like a champ when his pot was one off pure luck. Danny told him he'd stop by with the cash tomorrow, and he went home. I tried to talk to him and see how he was really doing, knowing he had some nasty guys he'd have to answer to about the grand he needed to pay back. But he just told me he was fine, and these things happen. He said he played it perfectly, which he did, and the cards don't always fall for the good guy. That was Danny, not worried about the cash or the ass-kicking he might get for lack of it. All he cared about was the game. Sometimes, I swear he forgot there was even money involved in all this. Then, he kind of disappeared. He wouldn't answer my calls. He wasn't at my aunt's house. I didn't end up seeing him again until about... Three months later, when he had completed the whole grieving process. Naturally, his game was kaput, so he would have to find new tables, new fish. That didn't take him very long. He never told me what happened with the loan shark. When you know Danny, you're going to have to understand you're not going to see behind that curtain often. Doesn't matter how close you are to him. He's always in his own world, playing life like a single-player game. 
Danny. You can't be a poker player if you're not an ass. There's too many times that come up where you really have to gut people. If you stop to think about the guy's kids or whether he can make his mortgage or not, you won't last long. A shark will read that in you and make you feel like you should feel sorry for him. Then he'll turn around and take you for everything you have and then some. Most players go broke, at least a few times. The game is so intuitive and there's so much money floating around. If you value money like a normal person, you won't make it on the grind. You really have to see your entire worth as pieces of clay or plastic, or else you'll play too scared. The other side of that sword is that it's really easy to float your car payments on a pair of jacks or something because you think the guy across from you is stupid. He doesn't even have to be smart to beat you. He could just be lucky at that very specific time. I went broke, well, what I considered broke back then. It was only 2000 The first time I lost someone else's cash, I was in credit I'd taken. Naturally, when you're taking credit to play cards, it ain't a bank that's lending it to you. And if it ain't a bank, it's probably someone who knows how to get their money back. When I couldn't pay him back, he had to do what loan sharks do. My saving grace was that my brother lent me a few hundred to try to grind back up, and I was lucky enough to get close. The remaining 400 was considered even after this guy popped my shoulder out of the socket, then gave me one to the gut with the butt of a bat to be sure I knew this was a one-time-only deal. Losing a killer hand on the river to Sydney goddamn Pontius hurts like hell, but feeling my humorous move outside the capsule where it was supposed to be was almost worse. That was the first time I lost to the point that I needed to stop playing to recover, which was a punishment in itself, but I deserved every bit of that anguish. I snap-called that whole hand like a true amateur. Like I was trying to tell everyone I was smarter than Pontius. Watch me dominate. I can see through this clown. See? You see, right? I'm smart, huh? Tell me I'm smart. Jesus. My mom told me she was sick that day. That was the first time she said the thing that was inside her. This was legit like the stuff you hear about on TV and in movies. It had never gotten anywhere close to me at that point. I didn't even really know what it was. She told me when I stopped home to eat real quick. Just no build-up. Here it is. She didn't say to sit down or ease into it too much. She just said the doctors are pretty sure she had it, and it wasn't the best scenario. She told me not to worry and that I better find something to do tonight because... She wasn't going to let me just sit home and be sad because of this news. She was intent on everything going on like normal. The actual worst part of losing that hand to Sydney, and all my cash along with it, was that I had to go home and face my mom. I was in a weird spot because I couldn't not go home. I was embarrassed, but I couldn't leave her alone after what she just told me. I mean, I tried. I kind of hoped I'd just play all night. Maybe I could just keep going forever. That's at least what I hoped. I ended up just not coming home. I did exactly what I'm doing right now. I walked toward home after that hand, trying to replay how it went wrong. Of course, it wasn't a technical thing. It was just being green. Maybe being too proud. Anyway, I got over it within the first hour, and I just kept hoofing it toward the mall, I guess. 
just like now, I just wanted to keep moving. I thought playing poker would be the best thing to do after hearing that news because it's what I loved. It would take my mind off my mom, off the reality that everything will end. And maybe there was a chance I could get some real cash to maybe take her out to dinner or something. I don't know. Maybe I could even start to set myself up because where was I going to live if she ended up leaving? This Park MGM thing still feels new. It was the Monte Carlo when I first used to come here, before the shooting. That was actually like a month before I moved out here. Some, especially those in the ultra-superstitious poker community, might call that a bad omen. I also moved here during a Mercury retrograde. According to Amy, that meant I wouldn't last. (laughs) It's funny. She even made sure our somewhat spontaneous wedding happened when that planet was behaving. I must have been born when Mercury was spinning weird too because what are the odds the two most important figures in my life die from the same kind of cancer? A female-only type of cancer. Some kind of jacked-up Oedipal curse. Amy's was almost the same. She cried when she told me. She was scared, unlike my mom. Or my mom just tried really hard to not show me that she was scared. This may sound bad, but it scared me more with Amy, too. And she told me on the first sign. My mom told me when she already knew how it would end. They passed almost the same way. No treatment ever got a response. Once it was in them, it just tore through. A few months, and it was over. I was alone again. Amy's death was harder, too. But that's because... I had no one left. Like, I knew I had no one. When my mom died, I didn't know Amy was in my future, but I figured there might be someone. I was young, and most men usually find wives. When Amy left, I wasn't young anymore. That was Snap Call, part three of the five-part season finale of the Matsudenza Myths, Other People's Money. Make sure you're subscribed and you're liking and doing all that fun stuff, supporting, and also letting everybody know that they can always catch up and that there will still be two more new episodes coming. Also, my debut novel, Angie's Move, is available for purchase now, ebook and paperback on Amazon, so make sure you check that out. And once more, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Monday with part four, Amy.